Would you take your Bibles with me and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke, chapter 18. As we continue our study through the book of Luke, our text this morning is Luke 18, verse 9, to verse 19, chapter 19, verse 10. Luke 18, 9 to 19, 10. For the reading of God's word prior to the sermon, I, I want to read simply the first half and the last half of this text, and, and then we'll work our way through uh, all of it eventually as we work through the sermon. So I want to read verse 9 through verse 17 of chapter eight, 18, and then verses 35 through eight of 18 through chapter 19, verse 10. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand so that we might honor once more the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And in chapter 18, verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded them to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, a, tax, a chief tax collector, and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, 
The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, we do ask today that you would empower the preaching of your word. May it be pleasing in your sight and the means you use to make us more like your son. And Father, if there is anyone who does not know Christ, I pray that today might be the day that they see their need for him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've walked through Luke's gospel over several months now, one of the things that we've noted time and time again is that when Luke introduced this gospel, he said he was writing for us an orderly account. We've noted many times that this means that Luke will take some of the stories in Jesus' ministry episodes in his life and parts of his teaching and will group them together in such a way to highlight a certain theme. That's what we're going to find this morning as well. Luke 18, verse 9 through 19, verse 10 can feel like a, a good chunk of text to look at at one time. But there are multiple things that Luke does in this text to show us that he wants us to look at this all together. First, you'll note in chapter 18, verse 9, that Luke begins with the story of a tax collector, a tax collector and a Pharisee who are praying in the temple. So Luke begins with the tax collector, and then he ends this section with the text we looked at, 19, chapter, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, looking at Zacchaeus, who is himself a tax collector. And he notes of Zacchaeus that not only was he a chief tax collector, but he was rich. And then right in the middle of our text, we'll find the story of a rich young ruler who approaches Jesus, and Luke says of the rich young ruler, he was extremely rich. So Luke brackets the text together with two tax collectors who would be quite wealthy, and in the middle gives us a wealthy man. But that's not the only way that he pieces all of this together. One of the things we've also noted in Luke's gospel is that he uses contrasts. For example, we find in Luke's gospel that it is the centurion who exercises great faith, greater than all in Israel, something that we would not expect. It's the Samaritan who shows mercy to the man on the roadside instead of the religious elites of Israel. It is the older brother who has seemed to do pretty well who finds himself distanced from his father, while it is the prodigal son who is restored and redeemed. It's the rich man who finds himself dying and then going to a place of torment, while it is Lazarus, the man who was poor and and begged and had dogs lick his sores, who finds himself in paradise. One of the things that Luke does is he provides these contrasts along the way so that we might see clearly the point he's making. Something like a jeweler does when he, when he puts his jewelry against a black backdrop so that the, the diamonds, the jewelry might be highlighted against that dark backdrop. That's what Luke does in this text. He provides for us contrasts. We see the two tax collectors, individuals we would not expect, actually come to find reconciliation with Christ. While the Pharisee, someone that we might look highly upon if we were in that culture, 
remains distance. Or we find that children and a blind men are able to be brought to Jesus while the wealthy man who would have been admired is turned away. Again, Luke provides not only this section bracketed by tax collectors, but throughout these contrasts. Well, if that is the case, if we're then supposed to see Luke 18.9 through 19.10 as one section he's holding together around a theme, what is that theme? What does Luke want us to see? And I think what he wants us to see are the requirements for those who would enter the kingdom of God. The requirements for those who enter the kingdom of God. Now, when I say that, I understand that that's not the way that we talk. We don't talk about entering the kingdom of God. We've recommended several people for membership this morning. They're going to share their testimonies tonight. I doubt any of them, if they wrote down what they want to share, wrote down, let me share with you how I entered the kingdom of God. We don't talk like that, but Jesus does. Look at chapter 18, verse 17, for example. Jesus, after having children and infants brought to him, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus is very open about using this vernacular, this language, entering the kingdom of God. Well, what does it mean? What's he talking about? How can we understand it? Well, there's something nice that happens for us in this text. Imagine... What happens in this text, I think we can imagine in real life. Imagine that somebody were coming up to the church, perhaps the guy that inspects our elevators periodically, and he walks into the office, and he were to say to us, Lee, is the, the deacon who oversees your building, is he around? I might answer, you're looking for a maintenance man. One of the other pastors might walk out the door and say, who, who are we looking for? And I might say, he's looking for Ryan Calife. Well, there, we've just said the deacon who oversees the building, the maintenance man, and Ryan Cali. But although we're using three different references, we know that we're all talking about the same person. And the fact that we're using those three references is helping us understand better who he is. Ryan Cali is our maintenance man and the deacon who oversees the building. Well, thankfully, we find that that same kind of conversation happens in this text. And when it happens, it helps us understand what is meant by entering the kingdom of God. So, for example, in chapter 18, verse 18, a ruler comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers him, answers him, and, and we go through it all. And then Jesus says, after the rich young ruler then is turned away, Jesus says in verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? The man has asked the question, how shall I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, how difficult is it for him to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples then respond to verse 26, those who heard it, then who can be saved? In other words, inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, and being saved are all terms that refer to the same reality. The vernacular we most often use of those three is being saved. So we will give testimony tonight. Somebody might say, I was saved when I was 
this many years old and first professed faith in Christ. But we also could say, I inherit eternal life, or I've entered the kingdom of God. There are three ways of speaking about the same thing that, that stress different facets of what it means to know Christ. We are saved from God's wrath. We live forever with him. We live under his reign as our king. And so really then, this text is just answering for us what are the requirements for those who would inherit eternal life? What are the requirements for those who would be saved? What are the requirements for those who would enter the kingdom of God? And our first thought when we hear that idea might be, well, we know these things. It may be to say, listen, if most of us are believers, and I trust that we are, then, then asking what are the requirements to be saved are going over things that we all already know. And that may be true. Let me give you then a few reasons why I think it's helpful. Besides the fact that this is the word of God and we just work through it, understanding that God is wiser than we are. A few reasons is helpful for us, even if we're believers, to reflect on requirements to inherit eternal life. One is that we never move on from these things in the Christian life. We are saved by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. But don't think that once you have repented and believed, you move on from repenting and believing. The whole of the Christian life is continually repenting and looking to the sufficiency of Christ. A second reason is by going over these requirements of what it means to, for, for someone to be saved, what's required of someone to be saved, it helps us understand how to pray for those whom we're evangelizing. Perhaps your unbelieving neighbor, as you pray for them, one of the things you can do is reflect back on Luke 18, 9 through 19, 10, and remember these requirements and pray that these things would be true in your unbelieving neighbor or friend. A third reason. We've said this many times, but it bears repeating again. Anything that we find ourselves assuming in one generation can easily be lost in the next. So if you and I approach texts like this and simply say, we all know that, and every time we come to it, we all know that, we all know that, and we never explicitly teach it, then the next generation is going to grow up and they're not going to all know that. And this is why we find ourselves again and again and again going over even basic things that it feels like everyone knows. And then finally, a fourth reason, there's some of you here who don't know Christ. You've never placed your faith in Christ. You're still in your sins under the wrath of God. And the things that I'm telling you today are things that need to be present in your life so that you might know Christ and enter his kingdom and have eternal life and be saved. What then are these things? I'm going to name five of them this morning, but I'll go quickly. Number one, we must know we need mercy. We must know that we need mercy. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, tells us the story of two men who go up to the temple to pray. Now, interestingly, before the parable begins, Jesus tells us the purpose of the parable, at least Luke does. In verse 9 of chapter 18, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
So Jesus is telling this parable to expose self-righteousness. In the parable, two men go up to pray, and the two men that Jesus chooses to be the main actors in this parable are two men who represent extreme ends of the spectrum for what we would think. One, you have a Pharisee. The Pharisee would have been viewed as the religious elite of the day. If somebody wanted to say, talk about someone who was really holy, the temptation would be for them to mention a Pharisee. He's somebody who's going to have memorized the law, probably, uh, supposedly lives a holy life. On the other end of the spectrum, you had tax collectors. The Jews were under Roman oppression. And so tax collectors were seen as if they betrayed their own people. Because what Jewish tax collectors would do is they would align themselves with Rome. So that they might collect taxes from their own brothers to give to Rome. And not only that, not only were they aligning themselves in their vocation with the enemy, but they would often ask the individual for more money than Rome required so that they themselves could get rich in the process. So they were seen as those who betray individuals, those who are thieves. And so here you have in this text, these two individuals, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they go up to the temple to pray. That would have been common during the hour of burnt offerings. There were two different times you would go up and offer public prayers. They go to do that. As the prayer Pharisee goes up to pray, Luke mentions uh, in verse 11 that the Pharisee was standing by himself probably wanting to distance himself from those whom he saw as lesser than him. And he prayed, we see his prayer, verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, when we hear that prayer, we might think to ourselves, now, is, is, is that altogether wrong? After all, you or I might have prayed that way. Maybe you see some men who's being hauled off to prison and you think to yourself, God, thank you that I'm not in that position. Outside of your grace, I very well could be given over to all kinds of matters. And that feels okay to pray, doesn't it? So so if we pray that way, God, thank you for your grace because that's the only thing that keeps me from doing that or being in that position. Why is it obviously bad for the Pharisee here? The reason it's bad for the Pharisee here is because this is not a prayer where he's magnifying the grace of God. He's not saying, God, but for your grace, I would be wicked. Rather, it's a prayer of self-righteousness. Notice in verse 12, what sets him apart in his mind from the tax collector isn't the grace of God. What sets him apart in his mind is all that he does. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I'm great, God. Thank you for recognizing that. The tax collector, on the other hand, in the same temple is also praying. And in verse 13, we read the tax collector standing far off. The Pharisee standing by himself, no dust to distance himself from others. The tax collector, interestingly, is also standing far off. But on this occasion, standing far off, no doubt, because he does not think that he is worthy to stand closer, to, to be moved toward the presence of God. Luke tells us the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes our text in verse 14, saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
one of the requirements for someone to enter the kingdom of God or to inherit eternal life or to be saved, whatever phrase you want to use, one of the requirements for us to be saved is we must recognize that we need God's mercy. If our hearts are full of self-righteousness, if we think that we are righteous in and of ourselves, then we are not in a position to find eternal life. We are not in a position to come to God. One of the requirements for us to inherit eternal life is that we must recognize that we need God's mercy. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, Jesus says, will be exalted. Now, similar to this is the second requirement. Number two, we must know that we are needy. We must know that we are needy. Just as the tax collector and the Pharisee provided for us a contrast in the first section, so we see in this next section of text that Jesus provides another contrast, this time between small children and even infants and a man whom everyone admired. In verses 15 through 17, Jesus is sitting there and individuals start bringing their children and even infants to Jesus. And the disciples try to get them to quit. And we might think, good grief, this is the disciples, you know, acting annoying again, doing something stupid. But, but this makes good sense. Children in that culture weren't looked upon as precious, as valuable. They were, in fact, seen as easily discarded. All they provide for us is their neediness, right? This is why a young mom can be going through Kroger with her young children, perhaps halfway falling out of the cart, and an older lady approaches her in the aisle and says, oh, cherish these days. And the young mom is thinking, I'm just trying to get to bedtime, right? We know this to be true. As precious as they are, they consume. And so it may be that we give the disciples a little grace here. And we think that they're trying to keep Jesus from someone who's not going to add anything to him, but simply needy, and therefore easily discarded. But amazingly, Jesus says in verse 16, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now before we flesh out then more of what this means for us, let's look at the contrast. The contrast that Luke provides for us is found in verse 18 through verse 30 as we look at the rich young ruler. The text begins, verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' first answer is one that's a bit surprising to us. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. When we first read that, we might think that Jesus is trying to correct his view of himself, right? That, that Jesus is saying, I'm not good. Don't, don't, don't think I'm good. Only God is good. That's not what Jesus is doing. If Jesus wanted to correct him and say, I'm not good like you think I'm good, Jesus easily could have said, I'm a sinner. But he wasn't a sinner, and what he was doing here wasn't correcting the man. Jesus is making this point, I think, to the man. You call me good, and only God is good. So if you see something in me that makes you understand that I'm good, bring it on home. Right? Dwell on this for a bit. Think about it. 
if I'm good and only God is good, then you need to recognize that standing in front of you is not a mere teacher, but it's God the Son. And as such, Jesus sets up this whole encounter by picturing himself as one whom the rich young ruler should devote his life to. If standing in front of you is the God-man, God the Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, then the rich young ruler should approach Jesus understanding you are worth everything to me. I would give up anything simply to know you. And so this is how the conversation begins with Jesus saying you need to recognize and, and bring this on home. But Jesus then goes on to answer his question in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus says if you want to know what you have to do to, to merit eternal life, just perfectly keep the commandments. Amazingly, the rich young ruler answers in verse 21, and he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, it should be the case that the rich young ruler recognizes, I have not done these perfectly. Maybe he's not dwelt on the fact that he's been unrighteously angry and simply focuses on the fact that he's not murdered. Maybe he ignores the fact that he has been lustful and simply focuses on the fact that he's never physically committed adultery. Whatever the case, we find that the rich young ruler is very much like the Pharisee that we read earlier, a man who has already thinks much of himself. And so Jesus hits on one thing to expose his heart. In verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, when Jesus makes this command to sell all that you have and give it to the poor, it's not because that's required of every believer. In fact, when we end this section, we're going to find that there was another individual named Zacchaeus who was extremely wealthy, a chief tax collector, and he does not give away all that he has, and he is seen as a follower of Christ. Why then is Jesus doing this? Jesus calls for this man to give away all he has because he wants to expose the fact that though he thinks he's righteous, he's actually failing to obey the first and greatest commandment. He does not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's not willing to give away all to follow Christ. And so we find then in verse 23, when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why would Jesus say that? Let me first make a quick correction. You may have heard this. I heard it growing up that when Jesus says a camel going through the eye of a needle, somebody would say in the ancient Near East, there was this gate in a very small area, and it was called the eye of the needle. And if a camel wanted to go through there, he'd have to work really hard and get down on all fours to get through that. If you've heard that, I heard that. That's just not true. <clears throat> if you thought that were true, then what Jesus would be saying is, it's really hard, but possible. And that's going to make it really hard to read Jesus' next statement, verse 27, when he says, what is impossible with man? No, you know what he means? 
He means a camel going through the eye of a needle. Impossible. Why does he speak that way? Well, because what wealth does, it's not as if, if, if no individual, we're going to see this, it's not as if no individual has wealth could ever inherit eternal life. We're going to read Jesus' response to that in a second. But the reason Jesus says that is because what wealth does for us is wealth says to us, you have all that you need. If, if I could say to you, all the money you can dream of, you have it. Then all of a sudden, all these you know, elements of anxiety in your life over, I'm going to need this, pay for a car, pay for the kids to go to college, pay for this, pay for this, all that goes out the door, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, you might have this idea, I no longer have need. I'm not needy. But this is one of the requirements for us to come to Christ that we must understand that we desperately need Him, that we can't bring anything to the table of what we need. Now, this, this statement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than those who have wealth to inherit the kingdom of God, leads the disciples to ask Jesus in verse 26, when they heard it, then who can be saved? Their thought was, if you have wealth, you're blessed of God. So if even those who are blessed can't inherit eternal life, what's the hope for anybody? Of course, Jesus answers in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is to say Every time someone inherits eternal life, a miracle of God has happened. God has done something that man cannot do for himself. On our own, you know what our default position is? It is to think that we are enough. Or minimally, it is to think if we recognize that we're not enough, that the hope lies within us doing more. But we're always looking to ourselves for self-sufficiency before God. And therefore, with anyone has eyes that are open to the fact that they are needy. It is because the Spirit of God is doing a miracle among them, doing a miracle in their hearts. This leads Peter then to make the obvious observation when Jesus says, you have to leave everything and follow me. Peter says, we've done that, verse 28. Peter says, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not inherit many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is acknowledging, yes, Peter, you've left these things. Let me make another quick side note here because this text can be confusing. Why does he throw in wife and children? Right, I get it. Many of us might say, I've left brothers and sisters in home to follow Christ. But why does he mention wives and children? I mean, is it godly? Tonight, could we find that some man says, in order to obey God, I've decided I'm going to leave my wife and my children. Go follow the Lord, and we're all going to go, amen. No, we're going to go repent. So why does Jesus mention leaving wife and children? Well, it's not because he envisions a married man leaving his wife and children. The idea, I think, might be better something like this. Sometimes, in order to follow Christ, we do surrender the joy of marriage and children. Imagine a man, for example, who feels compelled to go to an area that is greatly, greatly uh, dangerous to plant a church. He might decide that if he's going to go to that area, those harsh conditions that a wife or a child could not bear, that he will forsake those glorious joys of a wife or a child for the sake of the kingdom. Or think about Jim Elliot, a 
a man who both was married and had a child, but in order to reach out to the Alka Indians, on his first encounter with those men, left his wife and child behind as he went out to speak to these men so that they might not be put at risk. And sure enough, Elliot and the others were killed. Regardless, Jesus is making the point to Peter, yes, Peter, you all have left me, but that too is no reason for arrogance or pride because no one who leaves anything for my sake is going to inherit anything less than hundredfold in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. But the main point of this contrast with the children and the rich young ruler is that if we are going to come to Christ, we must see ourselves as needy. The very element that made the crowds want to push the children to the side and not come to Jesus is the very element Jesus wants to uphold and say, this is what must be present in your heart. You must see that you are needy. Once more, you have nothing to bring to the table. You are hopeless apart from Christ. This then brings us to our third point. We must have desperate faith. We must have desperate faith. I say desperate simply to emphasize that we have a faith that understands that we are hopeless apart from Christ. That we are saying, Jesus, if my faith in you is not enough, then I will go to hell. I'm trusting, desperately hoping in you. We see this is exemplified in chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. The text of the blind man. As Jesus is going on to Jericho, there's a blind man sitting by the roadside, and that blind man is crying out, or is there for individuals to give him goods. He's a beggar. This would be the lot of someone who was blind in that culture. You couldn't make a living. You couldn't do anything. You were just left to beg. That's what he's doing. Well, as this blind man is there by the roadside begging, all of a sudden he hears the crowds, he hears noise going on, and he inquires as to what's going on. Someone tells him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. When he hears that, he cries out in verse 36, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who are around him answer him the same way that the crowds did the children. Be silent. Right? Get back. You're not valuable enough to require his time and attention. But the man would have none of it. According to verse 39, he cried out, All the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped when he heard this, and he commanded the blind man to be brought to him. When the blind man was brought to him, Jesus asked the man, what do you want me to do for you? After all, it may simply be that the man is saying, I'm begging, I could use a lot of money. But that's not what he answers. He says to Jesus in verse 41, Lord, let me recover my sight. Which is a statement of faith because it would have been understood only God is able to do something like take a blind man and give him sight. This is an act of faith. And the fact that he recalls Jesus, the son of David, is his recognition that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one from David who would come and reign forever as God's king. Jesus then, seeing this, says in verse 42, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And we read in verse 43, and he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. 
The blind man represents a desperate faith, a faith that says, I'm coming to you knowing you are my only hope. Number four, we must have repentant hearts. We must have repentant hearts. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, Jesus is passing by and there's a chief tax collector. Now, now we don't know exactly what that means. It may be that, that he had some tax collectors under him and so they collected taxes and he took some of what they had or, or maybe he was, it was just a high-rated tax collector, whatever the nature. We do know he was extremely wealthy. His name was Zacchaeus. We also know that he was short and that comes into play in this story. Because as Jesus is passing by, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he can't because the crowds of people are surrounding him and they're taller than him. He can't see over him. So he looks down the way and he sees there's this sycamore tree up here and he decides if I scale that tree, if I get up on the sycamore tree, then I can see Jesus. So he runs down there and he climbs the sycamore tree because, well, the Lord he wanted to see. <laughs> and as Jesus passed by, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, it must be that I go to your house today. Zacchaeus indeed comes down from the tree. They go to his house. The crowds get upset. The self-righteous people get upset because they know Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Why in the world is Jesus in his house? But it's soon made clear Jesus isn't in his house merely to fellowship with a tax collector. He's there to bring Zacchaeus to repentance because it's exactly what happens. In chapter 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is what repentance looks like. Zacchaeus says, Not only do I want to turn away from doing the wrong I've done, but I want to make it right. And Jesus answers him in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The reason Jesus makes that final statement is because of those crowds who were judging him. Why in the world would you go into the house of a tax collector? Because I'm going to save sinners. And those who recognize their own sin are the only people who are going to find eternal life. Zacchaeus recognized his own sin, and that's why he was repentant. What then does it look like, what's required of us to find eternal life, to be saved, to enter the kingdom of God? It requires that we know that we need mercy, that we see ourselves as needy, that we have a faith, that we place our faith in Christ, a desperate faith that says, you're my only hope, that we have repentant hearts. But there's one other note here. Point five, we must follow Jesus in his path to glory. We must follow Jesus in his path to glory. Now, you may note that one section of our text I've skipped over, and that's 18 verses 31 through 34. In some ways, the text fills out of place. Luke brackets this together. We have stories of contrast, but right in the middle of it, Jesus foretells of his death. Chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp 
what he said. Jesus lays out for the third time in Luke's gospel what's going to happen to him. He lays out his redeeming work. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be flogged. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. And on the third day, he's going to rise from the grave. This is our hope for salvation. This is the gospel. This is what we must believe. Whom The one whom we must trust in for eternal life is the one who gave his life and was raised from the dead. But interestingly, Jesus lays this out as the path to glory. That is, before he is raised and ascends to the Father's right hand and reigns in glory, he must first be flogged and beaten and suffer and die. And amazingly, Luke tells us in verse 34, the disciples understood none of it. I mean, why, humanly speaking, would they not get this? How can it be even clearer than saying, they will kill me? We get what that means, right? It seems, humanly speaking, the reason they struggled with this is because it's hard to have a category for a Messiah, God's promised king, who would reign forever dying. But it's also hard to read about Jesus' path to glory toward the resurrection was first a path of beating and flogging and suffering and dying without being reminded that this is our path as well. Luke writes his gospel, the gospel of Luke, but he has a second volume, the book of Acts. And it may be that at this point in Luke's gospel when Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die before I'm raised, that the disciples had no idea what he was talking about but they soon would. We read in the book of Acts, on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, these men who were filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered suffered for the sake of Christ. They persevered in continuing to repent and continuing to believe, continuing to hold fast to Christ no matter what it cost them, and it cost them everything. They too would be beaten. They too would be flogged. They too would be killed. Almost all of them to a man martyred for the sake of Christ. And you and I need to understand that when we come to Christ, one of the requirements is that we recognize he demands our life. It may be that you live your entire life and you are never killed for the sake of Christ. But it must be that if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you must be ready, if necessary, to die for the sake of Christ. Jesus says nothing less. When he encourages us to follow him, saying, come follow me, he says, you must first deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. The path that Jesus took to glory, the path he took to the resurrection, is the same path he asks us to follow him on as well. And so for you and me, if we're going to be followers of Christ, it demands nothing less than us that they would then that we repent and believe and that we continue to repent and we continue to believe, we continue to confess Christ as our Lord no matter what happens. If we lose our job, if we lose our income, if we lose our lives, this is what Christ has called us to. Luke 18, verse 9 through 19, verse 10 answers for us this question. What are the requirements for someone who would have eternal life? We must see ourselves in need of mercy. We must see ourselves as needy. We then must place our faith 
in Jesus Christ, recognizing he is our only hope. We must repent of our sins, turning away from all our self-reliance and our rebellion against him, willing to look to him only as our hope. And then we live a life continuing to repent, continuing to believe, persevering in the faith. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ this morning. And if your response is, I don't think I need him, then we're going to pray, and I would encourage you to pray, God, show me my needy heart. Show me I need mercy. Because that's required for you to enter the kingdom of God. If you are a believer this morning, these elements that we've looked at, we never turn away from. We live every day of our lives knowing that we need his mercy, that we're needy, trusting in him, repenting of our sins, and walking the path of following Christ, no matter what it costs us. And so this morning is going to be another opportunity for us to confess our faith in Christ, to confess that we're willing to follow the one who said, take up your cross and follow me. We're going to testify to that together this morning by coming to the table. The way we're going to come is we're going to have a moment of silence that's going to let the musicians get in place, pastors get up front, and then I'm going to pray. After I'm through praying, each row will dismiss to the outside of the row, the first, followed by the second, followed by the third, so on and so forth. The rows will come from the outside, come around, and you'll find a stack of two cups. You'll pick up one stack of two cups. The top one has juice, the bottom one has bread. You'll then return to your seat to the inside of the row. And then once we've all received the juice and the bread, we'll eat together and we'll drink together. A reminder to us that God has not simply saved you or me, but has saved his bride. And that when he comes back, we'll go to meet him together as his people. So if you're a believer this morning, in good standing with a gospel-preaching church, you profess your faith in Christ, we'll invite you to join us this morning as we come to the table. But first, let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to come this morning.